All right, so what I want to know is, um, have any of you kids ever built a fort? Yes. Yeah? Okay. So I'll get this around my head here. What did you build your fort out of? The last fort that you built, what did you build your fort out of? What did you build your fort out of, Jubilee? Because you were the first one to raise your hand that I saw anyway. Um, I used chairs. Chairs? Um, I don't know. Like, did you use like blankets and... Sheets, right? A dog bed, awesome. Anybody use something other than chairs and that kind of thing? Uh, Nora? Um, blankets and pillows. Blankets and pillows. Has anybody, did, has anybody ever used a cardboard box? Yes, yes. Or a bunch of cardboard boxes? Levi, was that you, what you were thinking? Yes. Okay, so here's my question. When you build your fort, are there some people that are not allowed to come in? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How about your parents? Are they allowed to come in? No. Now, if your parents said, okay, it's time to go to bed or uh, empty the trash or, you know, something else, and you stayed in your fort, what might they do? Yeah, they could. If they just wanted to, they could just come and take your fort apart, right? Okay. And then you would have to rebuild it. Exactly. So uh, I wanted to ask you that question because there's a very famous verse in the Bible. And uh, Elijah, if you will put that, uh, that verse and that, uh, that picture up there. Uh, take a look at the picture right here. Now, that's not what Jesus really looks like. That's just kind of the way people saw Jesus like uh, years and years ago. And... Uh, but I want you to notice that he is standing at a door doing what? Knocking. Knocking. All right. Elijah, can you go ahead and put the scripture there? This is from uh, Revelation 3.20. He says, behold, that's, that means, that's a word that just means, look, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. All right. Now, take the verse off and let's just look at the picture again, Elijah. I, I want you to notice something very interesting about that door. Is there something that you notice about that door that's different than your door? What do you notice, Liam? There is no handle, there is no handle on the outside. Okay. I think you're a pretty smart kid from everything I can tell, and you're also sort of an artistic kid from everything I can tell, right? So tell me, what do you think it means that there is a door that Jesus is knocking at but there's no handle. What do you think that means? It's a poor person lives there. It's what? A poor person's lives there. It's a poor person's house? Okay. Oh, that's uh, sociologically speaking, that could be the case. Jubilee, what do you think? Um, he can't. Um, they have to open the door and let him come into their life. Boom. Did you hear what Jubilee said? Hey, that's you. You have to open the door. So if you have a fort, You've built it, and uh, your parents are nice, and they're respecting your creativity and your fun, so they don't come charging into your fort and open the door and crawl in, and they're too big anyway, and they'll tear it down by doing that, right? Okay? So your parents, although they are big and strong and they have the authority to tell your, tear your fort down, don't. Although they have the authority to open the door and break in and just do whatever they want, they don't because they love you, right? And they respect you. Okay, Amos. 
that means you and you and you. God could just break into your life and make you do what he wanted you to do. But he doesn't. Jesus said, look, I'm standing at the door of your heart, your life, and I'm knocking. He has the power and authority to just barge in, but he doesn't. You know why? Because he wants you to let him in. He wants you to love him because you choose to. God gives you a lot of freedom. Now, you may not think you have a lot of freedom. You're at home, your parents tell you what to do, but you still have a lot of freedom. You can disobey, you can think what you wanna think, but God wants us to do what he wants, but he wants us to choose to do that. He doesn't wanna force us to do that. So sometimes in karate, I'm trying to get you guys to learn how to do a particular move, and I will pick your leg up and move it, right? And you're supposed to do a, a low horse stance, right? And I won't demonstrate a horse stance up here because you wouldn't understand. Um, but anyway, I push your legs out so that you'll get lower in your horse stance. But see, I'm trying to show you how to do it, but I can't make you do it in the long term. You have to learn and decide to do it yourself. So what I wanna encourage you to do is open your heart to Jesus, let him come inside, and you start listening to him and doing what he says, and you're gonna find you're gonna have a much better life. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen means that's true. All right, you guys can go upstairs. Who's leading them? And an Araceli will lead them. All right, believe it or not, that is a good introduction to the next chapter in uh, this book that I'm writing that relates to the theme that we're addressing at church. And uh, I probably should have gone over that with them again. But uh, I told you guys last week there was a little prayer that my mom taught me when I was growing up. And that prayer was, God is great, God is good. Now we thank him for our food, amen. Is God great? Yes. Is God good? Yes. Then why is there so much evil in the world? That's the tricky part, isn't it? So last week, I just stopped at God is. And by implication, God is definitely great. But I demonstrated, I proved, I think, um, or gave you enough reason to have good, solid, grounded faith that God exists because something has always existed. The universe is not that something. It makes more sense to believe that the something is someone, a personal, powerful, incomprehensibly intelligent being that uh, one theologian, Thomas of Aquinas, called the ground of all being. That means he is the basis for your existence. Nothing does not produce something. Something had to be powerful enough and intelligent enough and not have a prior cause causing it to bring the universe into existence. So believing in God is not some wild fairy tale. You have some atheists that would like to disparage that and say that believing in God is like, uh, you know, the, the flying spaghetti monster. I didn't come up with that, that's what they actually say, they just wanna make fun of the idea. But uh, another philosopher has said that belief in God, far from being nonsense, is actually properly basic. It makes the most sense. Now you're gonna, uh, and you have probably already moved beyond that, but my hope is that this gives you some intellectual reasoning behind faith in God 
because faith in God is something that the majority of people have believed throughout the years, and it is something that the most intelligent people in the world believed until about the 19th century when we started getting uh, a little bit more intelligent than we think we are. We started getting a little bit cocky, a little bit arrogant, and thinking, well, we just don't really need God. And maybe God had been oversimplified by some folks in the church. But let's move forward. God is, God is great. I, I have, I, uh, in this chapter that I, I wrote for the book, um, I put this Psalm, I don't know if I'll leave it there or not, but for right now, uh, Psalm 68, 34 through 35 says, Proclaim the power of God, whose majesty is over Israel, whose power is in the heavens. You, God, are awesome in your sanctuary. The God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. Praise be to God. So I asked the question, what does it mean to say that God is great? Last time, uh, I keep quoting these philosophers and these theologians, but I want to make you familiar with uh, these very important thinkers. But last time, um, I affirmed Anselm's definition. This is Anselm of Canterbury, a medieval theologian. And he said that God is the being that which no greater can be thought. God is the being above and beyond which nothing greater can be conceived. That's the definition of God. So essentially, that means God is great. There's a term that has been applied to that, and you may have heard it, and I can't remember if I used it last time or not, but it's the term omnipotent. Have you heard this term? Right, omni means all everything, and potent, all powerful is what that means. So that word can be used, and it means that God is all powerful, and only an omnipotent being could have created the universe from nothing beyond his own resources. This alone qualifies God as great. We could also say that God is great means his glory is above all else. He is worthy because of what he's done and for who and what he is. And we're wise to recognize him and to revere him and to praise him. Indeed, the very first verse we teach the karate kids is the fear of the Lord. Reverence for the Lord is what? the beginning of knowledge. And then there's another proverb, very like Proverbs 1-7, that one, that says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So that makes a lot of sense. We could stop right there. But as I just mentioned in the introduction to this little talk, um, God is great, but you're aware that this, there is a problem, and that is the problem of evil. What about evil and, apparent, and, and also the apparent imperfections of our world? If God is all-powerful, then why couldn't he create a better world? And this is what causes some people to say, well, they don't believe in God. And if God is good, then why wouldn't he create a perfect world? Now, these are valid questions to ask, and this is why I've come up with 52 answers to that question. <laughs> so why is there so much suffering and evil? Why is COVID back on the rise again? Who's at fault for that? Uh, is it humans? Did God bring it on us? Is he cursing us with it? There's all sorts of questions related to that, right? So this is why some have said God is not great. In fact, there was an author in the early uh, part of this a new millennia. I don't know when the book came out, the early 2000s. His name was Christopher Hitchens, and he wrote a book called God is Not Great. And this is in the wake of uh, the, uh, the uh, bombings and the, the destruction of uh, the towers, the Twin Towers and 911, and all of these folks that were doing this in the name of God were crying out, Allahu Akbar, which in Arabic means God is great. Well, just because you say 
God is great doesn't mean you're referring to the same God that is God, right? I mean, somebody could be worshiping the devil and call him God and say God is great, and we wouldn't want to affirm that. People have all sorts of erroneous ideas about God, right? They are in error. And that doesn't mean that we have to agree with them. But God is great. Uh, and by the way, in Hebrew, it's Yahweh Gadol. That's God is great in Hebrew. And it is all over the Old Testament. Um, but God does exist. If he did not exist, nothing else would exist. So we're left with that. So we have to answer this problem of evil. So what I want to do uh, in answer to those questions, if God is so powerful, then why couldn't he create a world without evil? And if God is great then and good, excuse me, why didn't he create a perfect world? Let's understand what we mean by omnipotence. So I'm going to give you several quotes here. Uh, uh, they're by C.S. Lewis and Thomas of Aquinas. C.S. Lewis wrote, omnipotence, me, omnipotence means to be able to do all that is intrinsically possible. And then Thomas of Aquinas said, nothing that implies contradiction falls under the omnipotence of God. And then back to Lewis, he said, but I know very well that if it is self-contradictory, it is absolutely impossible. You may attribute, attribute miracles to him, that is to God, but not nonsense. And finally from Lewis, it remains true that all things are possible with God. The intrinsic impossibilities are non-entities. So we're familiar with the word intrinsic because we have a barbecue joint right up the road, right? And they have it up there and, you know, they say, because barbecue and beer is intrinsically Texan, right? The word intrinsic means what is related to the essential nature of something or someone. God can do what is humanly impossible, but some things are intrinsically impossible, which means they are in themselves impossible. In other words, God cannot make a red-green thing since color is actually the reflection of a certain band of light in the electromagnetic spectrum, permit me to say it this way, um, God cannot make an infrared ultraviolet thing. They exist on opposite ends of the electromagnetic spectrum. Something cannot be infrared and ultraviolet at the same time. That's intrinsically impossible. We're not limiting God by saying that that is impossible. Um, in a world of genuinely free creatures, here's the application for that. You are genuinely free. Maybe sometimes you don't feel free, but you are genuinely free to make choices. Again, uh, you know, there have been a spike in, in COVID cases and you chose to be here. Some of you chose to be at home. I don't think you were forced to be here. I don't think you were forced to stay at home. Uh, you chose to tune in to uh, YouTube today or you're watching on Facebook. That's a decision that you made. You may have been persuaded or influenced, but you still are able to freely choose, which as I said last week, is a good reason to believe that God is a personal being because he is capable of choosing without any prior cause, right? So in a world of genuinely free creatures, it would seem to be intrinsically impossible for God to force persons to do what he wills when they choose to do otherwise. Did you hear what I said? Did you understand? If you're really free, then it would be intrinsically impossible for God to force you to do what he wills and yet still say that you are free. So in other words, we have to have this 
playing field that allows us to rebel against God, that allows us to say no to God. In other words, your life is like the fort that I was talking to the kids about. And you may be building it of cardboard or blankets, or maybe you're using something a little better. But at the door of your life, Jesus stands and knocks. And he could kick the door in. He could tear your house down. And one day you're going to die and this uh, house here is going to go away. But for right now, you've got your fort. And maybe, you know, you just got a little blanket there as the door. And maybe you've got no boys allowed, no girls allowed. Or maybe you've got no God allowed. God is powerful enough to storm through the door, but then that would be violating free will. And God created you in his image. And that means he created you like him with a free will. So if God were to violate your free will, then we are dealing with this intrinsic impossibility. It's no longer a free will. It's not genuinely free. And you can dance around that all you want. But it is only if you are free to choose between at least two different things, free to choose that you are genuinely free. Otherwise, you don't have free will. It's an illusion. And I do not believe that your free will is an illusion. Here's a, an old philosophical argument that addresses this. Here's the question. Can God make a rock so heavy that he can't lift it? I'll be careful. If you answer yes to the question, then you agree implicitly that God may be limited by his creation. But if you answer in the negative, then you affirm God is not omnipotent since there is indeed something his power is incapable of. If he cannot create a rock so heavy he can't lift it, his power is limited. If he can create a rock so heavy that he can't lift it, his power is limited. Hmm. Difficult. This dilemma is intended to stump those of us who affirm that God is all powerful. The resolution that I will offer will serve to prove both God's omnipotence and to give insight into, into his character. And those of you that have been with me for a while have heard me uh, uh, say this before. But my answer to the question is, yes, God can and has created such a rock. The rock in this case is human will. He chose to do that. You and I can resist the will of God for our lives. By the way, that's why hell exists. The scripture says it is not God's desire, it is not God's uh, 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 intent that any should perish. He wants everybody to be saved. And yet, what? People still perish. People still go against what God wants. He has obviously created someone that can stand against him, not because you're all powerful, but because he has simply chosen to limit himself. I think that this is very, very important. The capability and willingness, I would even say courage on God's part, to create beings with free will who inhabit a world where their, that will may be genuinely actualized demonstrates God's greatness. I think God is great because he created you with a capacity to resist him in spite of the fact that he could tear your little fort down in a heartbeat. He still chooses to wait at the door. And it's not pathetic. God wants you to love him. And friend, forced love is a monstrosity. That's evil. Right? I mean, those of you, you know, you got kids in your life. You can't force them to love you. It's great when they're little and, you know, they come up and hug you all the time and say, I love you. 
and they get a little older and they want to be a little bit more independent. And maybe you tell them something that they don't want to hear and they say something like, I hate you. And that can break your heart. Or you can just say, yeah, no, I know my kid and my kid's emotional and they say stuff like that all the time. But in the long run, love is wanting to do what is best for the other person. So even if your child says, I hate you because you won't let them run across the street and play in traffic, you know you're doing the best for them. You know you're trying to teach them. They say, I hate you because they don't want to wash their hands or brush their teeth or any number of things. You know you're doing the best for them, so you tolerate that, you deal with that. And God deals with that kind of drama from us all the time, doesn't he? Um, maybe you don't have the kind of interpersonal relationship with God that I do, or perhaps that you could, that puts you in a position where you'll just tell God anything. I just tell God anything and everything. If I'm mad, if I'm frustrated, if I'm happy, if I, there are times when I just, I'm just walking along and I just say, Lord, I just really love you. I just hope you know that. I didn't even notice that, but it's like a little kid. And there are times when I am so angry. Uh-oh, the pastor is going to now confess to the congregation. I bought a new office chair last week, right? I have, there's a couple of them. There's a secretary's chair and it goes back really easy like this. And all the time I'm doing this while I'm trying to read scripture. And then I have an old office chair that I've used forever and it's starting to get all wobbly. So I decided I want a new office chair. I was gonna get a cool gaming chair because they had them at Sam's and it's got like a little, this little uh, uh, foot rest that, that kicks out, you know, and you can, and it's got like a backrest back here, a lumbar. And I was like, dude, that's great. But the normal gaming chairs, those of you that have kids that want a gaming chair and you've looked at the prices of them, they're obscene. They're ridiculous. It's like $350, $400 for a chair. Come on, man. It's not a fancy chair for your living room. I mean, this is an office chair that swivels and stuff. So they got this really cool one at Sam's. In fact, I met this guy that, who knows, he might show up at church sometime. I was sitting in the chair and just chilling and trying to figure out whether I liked it or not. And this guy came up and just started talking to me. We had this long theological conversation because <laughs> I got out of the chair and I said, oh, you, you know, do you, do you want to sit there? He said, no. He said, I, I was just watching you. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> And it wasn't weird or anything. He was just a different sort of dude. Like I, I never quite figured out where he was from or anything like that. Um, but oh, we had this long conversation about God. He found out that I told him I was a pastor and he said, so he said, do you believe in the Trinity? Do you believe that God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit? And I said, yes, sir, I do. He said, oh, it took me a long time to get to that point, right? But anyway, I, I went back. I didn't buy it that day. I'm trying to be careful with money. I didn't buy it that day. And then I went back to Sam's and I sat in it again and I was like, you know what? I'm just convincing myself I want this. This is not that comfortable of a chair. <laughs> so I went to Office Depot. They have a billion chairs. And I sat in all of them. And there was a chair that was among the cheapest. It's a big, looks like a big executive chair, right? It looks really expensive, but it was really one of the cheapest ones. Finance lady, it was one of the cheapest ones. <laughs> And I sat in it and I was like, yeah, okay, I like this. So the lady brought it out and I brought it home. Now, not many, you got to assemble these things, right? You bring it in a box. You don't get to like put the chair in there. So I bring it home um, and uh, I take it all out of the box. And there's not many screws and there wasn't much to it, but I tried to pay as close attention as I possibly could to the instructions. Right? I could have just figured it out. I'm the typical male in many respects. I just want to just figure it out. And I probably could have done that. But I thought, no, I'm going to watch the instructions. Yeah, well, that was a dumb move. 
Because when it got to the back, right, where you're screwing the back on, it showed in this picture that you were supposed to lay the back over the seat. I installed everything else, including the arms that hold the back on, right? And so then what you're supposed to do is lay this down and put the top screws in and then flip it up and then put the bottom screws in. At least that's how I interpreted the instructions. I am here to tell you 30 minutes at least I was frustrated to the point of hollering at the chair and saying, God, why aren't you helping me? Because I had one screw and it would not go in. And I know it was the right screw. I looked and I can't, it, it looked to me like there needed to be a longer one, but no, this is the one. And I moved this thing all over and I was so frustrated. Now, if I didn't have a real relationship with God, I would just go, oh, but I have a relationship with God where if there's nobody around thinking I'm insane, I actually talk to God, right? I'm not insane. There really is a God. He's really a person. He really hears me. And it took forever me saying, okay, God, I need you to help me now. Why aren't you helping me? Why aren't you helping me? Now, this is minor, but it's frustrating because I just wanted to get it together. And I thought I was going to be able to get it together before lunch. It's like 1130 when I started. Yeah, it was 1245 by the time I finally finished. I finally got that screw in. And then when I popped the back back up, like it said in the instructions, it wouldn't go any further than the bottom screws. So you know what I should have done? Yeah, figured it out myself anyway. But my point in telling you that long anecdote is just to help you to understand that God is real, God is a person, and when you have a personal relationship with God, then you interact with him. But also to tell you that I had free will. God didn't tell me to buy that chair. In fact, in retrospect, it may be that I shouldn't have bought that chair. I didn't get a major check from the Holy Spirit, and uh, you know, I, it's, you know, I don't have a, a lack of funds to buy the chair, but I've pretty much gone on a moratorium on spending right now, um, except for that chair. But did I need that chair? No, I convinced myself that I needed that chair. Don't we do that? We convince ourselves that we need something. And then we just kind of push our own way. And so I have free will, but God says, you know what? That's not really aligned to my will. Guess what happens when you get out of line from God's will? Yep, bad things happen. Stuff starts going wrong. So I strongly suspect that had I been paying better attention, God might have said something on the, on the lines of, did I tell you to buy that chair? Did I give you permission to buy that chair? Is that my idea? Daryl, what are you screaming at me for? You got yourself into this, right? Maybe, maybe he would have said that. I don't know, okay? But that's one thing, okay? God has limited himself by creating creatures in his image that have free will and we are capable of resisting God. Not because he cannot, but because he chooses not to violate our free will. He stands at the door and knocks and seeks access and entry. But the preeminent example of God's capacity and willingness to limit himself is the incarnation of his one and only son, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus affirmed, I and the Father are one. That's John 10, 30. The apostle Paul proclaimed, for in him all the fullness of deity lives bodily. That's Colossians 2, 9. Jesus continued to be God and to have the nature of God, but chose to lay aside his divine power and prerogative and privileges to take on the limitations of a human nature. 
The baby born in a manger grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man and also remained in unbroken communion or fellowship with God. He also maintained a continual dependence upon his father. That's throughout his entire life on earth. So this Jesus was and is with the God of the universe, one with the God of the universe. However, the Son of God didn't just pretend to be human. Now this kind of bothers me. There are people that have this perspective on Jesus that, well, he's God, so, you know, although he was human, he wasn't really human like us, right? He just kind of floated around on earth and, you know, could have exercised omnipotence at any point in time. But I think it's really important for us to understand that Jesus really became human. Now, it was affirmed in an early ecumenical council in the church, and we affirm that Jesus is one person of the three persons in the Trinity, and he has two natures, and those two natures are inextricably connected, right? They are uh, connected by one substance, we perhaps would say. Um, and uh, that those two natures are a divine nature, the divine nature, and a human nature. But during his time on earth, Jesus emptied himself. That's what the scripture says, and we'll read that in just a minute. And that tells us that he put his divine nature in terms of its power and prerogative below his human nature, but he had a pure human nature, not a fallen, corrupt, sinful human nature like all of us have. So a popular songwriter from a previous decade asked, what if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home? Jesus Christ became just that. He took every bit of our humanity upon himself. And as one early theologian put it, what is unassumed is unhealed. This means that the Son of God had to take the fullness of humanity in order to take away all of our sin. On the cross, Jesus assumed all of our sin and selfishness and sickness and then died the death we deserve. He who knew no sin became our sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He came and died and rose from death so that we may be saved from this corrupt world and have the hope of eternal life in a new and perfect world. That is the epitome of love. And it required God's self-limitation. Now let's get to the verse. Uh, I'm gonna quote part of this. Uh, and uh, Elijah, you have these verses up there. I'm quoting uh, Philippians 2, 6 through 9. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's powerful. But God had to choose to limit himself to do that. You see, there are philosophical groups and religious groups that refuse to believe that Jesus was fully human. There are religious groups and philosophical groups that refuse to believe that Jesus actually died on the cross. Most Muslims do not believe Jesus died on the cross. They believe a substitute died in Jesus' place. We believe Jesus died as our substitute because that's what the scripture teaches. And by the way, the, the Bible was completed 500 years before Muhammad came along 
and uh, wrote his book, right, the Quran. So um, Christ did die for us, but he didn't remain dead. I like the, 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 uh, the lyric to a song. It says, uh, ain't no grave can hold my body down. The author of life rose from the grave on the third day, and now he always lives to provide salvation for any who will put their faith in him. Here is the rest of that Philippians passage. This is verses 10 and 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul would write a paean of praise to this great God. This is from Romans 11:33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable, that means beyond searching, his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. God's true greatness is about more than the possession of raw power and incomprehensible intellect to create things and people as he wants them to be. I hope you're listening because this is how I'm seeking to lay the groundwork and answer the question why God, who is all, all powerful, God is great and God, who is perfectly good, would create a world that has evident imperfection and evil in it. God's true greatness is not just about the possession of raw power and incomprehensible intellect to create things and people the way he wants them to be. The limitless God can limit himself if he chooses. I'm gonna say that again, and if you were really paying attention, it could conceivably be controversial. The limitless God can limit himself if he chooses. God has created beings in his image with free will. God has limited himself by permitting the independent exercise of free will, even when it opposes his own. God has also limited himself by becoming one of us so that the destructive exercise of human free will may be atoned for and corrected. God has chosen to limit himself in order to achieve the purpose of his will to raise up a people who have freely chosen to love him and who have made his will their own without coercion or fear of punishment. My friends, God is very great indeed. Amen. Amen. So what is our response to that? To bow before him, to say Jesus is Lord to follow Jesus' example and say, not my will, but thy will be done. Because what God seeks is your free love and your willingness to do his will. And friends, you're gonna be happier when you do the will of God than if you have the greatest desires you think you want. So when we come to Jesus to get saved out of this world that is corrupt, that is fallen, that is sinful. We come to Jesus and we don't just say, Jesus, I want you to be my savior. That's great, but that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says, doesn't say you get saved by saying, Jesus, I want you to be my savior. It says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord means he's the one in charge. He's the boss, he's the king, he's the master. Not my will, 
but thy will be done. Not my ideas, not my opinions, not what my set says, what my tribe does, but what you say. That's what I want. And that's why we gather in a community so that there will be other people who are also seeking to do the will of God that are there shoulder to shoulder to support you and encourage you to go forward and do the same. So today, I urge you, I encourage you with all my heart, don't just say it, but mean it. Jesus, you're the Lord. I will follow you. Not my will be done, but yours be done.